Hey everyone, welcome to Into the Bytecode. My guest today is Gupsheep, the builder behind Dark Forest. Gupsheep and I met at a research workshop hosted by the Ethereum Foundation, early on in his journey of working on Dark Forest. And then I had the good fortune of being a counterpart for him and the team as they built the game into what it is today. Dark Forest is a uniquely crypto-native game, and I think embodies patterns that we can all learn a lot from. It's a game that takes place in a procedurally generated universe, where the smart contracts enforce the rules of the game, but where they don't leak information about what each player is up to. In this conversation, we talk about how they use ZK-SNARKs to enable this core game mechanic. Then we talk about how Dark Forest has organically built a community of players and developers, how DAOs are participating in the game, how Dark Forest might interoperate with other games in the near future, and we also have a good discussion on layer twos and trade-offs involved in choosing a scaling solution. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. The first thing that I was curious to, to talk about was interoperability. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you wrote this, uh, this piece about it. And to me, it seems like this applies to gaming, but also to crypto products and protocols. Otherwise, there's, there's a weak version of interoperability, which is saying that, okay, I have my product, you know, I have a web UI, and it's not using the blockchain for all that it can do because you're still requiring the person to use the same front end of the same client. On the other hand, like what you've been doing with Dark Forest is the, the only thing that's anchoring this game together is this core smart contracts, right? And you're almost purposefully encouraging people to like build different clients and whatnot. So I'm curious, was this clear to you from the beginning that there's a spectrum and like how has your thinking about this evolved? Yeah, for sure. I really like the word that you use here, spectrum, to describe the different ways that we can think about interoperability. Um, I think interoperability or like the full promise of interoperability that a platform like Ethereum offers is really going to be much more than just like, you know, I write my smart contract and like technically anyone can connect to it. It's technically permissionless. Um, it really involves all these other components like building and designing for third-party development from day one and treating third-party developers uh, as, as first-class users as well. Um, and things like, you know, adhering to not just like the strict standards that have been set up uh, for things like NFTs or whatever else, um, but making it easy for players to integrate that or like, you know, other, other third party services or applications to integrate um, what, you're, what you're doing with what they're doing. Um, so I think for us uh, with Dark Forest, one of the things that was exciting to us from day one was this idea that you could have a game that is client agnostic, um, a game where, uh, you know, things like bots and scripts um, and automations and other utilities that players might write on their own custom front ends are first-class features of the game. You know, the game can be played in multiple ways. It can be played from zkga.me. It can be played by locally running source code that we provide. Um, it can be played by like rolling your own client or modifying any of the above. Um, so yeah, for us, like we've always felt that we would achieve some of the most interesting outcomes if we could make that a priority from, uh, you know, as 
as early as possible. We didn't quite hit this with the first few releases of Dark Force, but over time I think we've been getting better. Um, and you know, this like there's so many more dimensions to this as well, like smart contract interoperability that we're we're wanting to explore too, and it's an open question what are the best patterns to expose those things. Yeah. So this uh <laughs> The idea of people writing their own clients or developing plugins around it, like that sounds, um, that sounds easy when you're saying it verbally. But just to like actually tease apart what's happening here, people are literally running local XDI nodes, which is the sidechain you're you're running yep. on, mm -hmm. and then they're running a local version of the web client hosted on localhost. And then they're writing scripts right there to communicate yes. with them. So there's like there's again a spectrum of things that players do depending on um, the level of complexity and customization that they're looking for. Uh, so in the first versions of the game back in 2020, um, one of the first patterns that we saw were, was that people were opening the Chrome Dev Console, and uh, you know we expose on the global window object an interface into, uh, you know, you can you can programmatically, for example, trigger Dark Force moves and upgrades and um, other transactions. So we saw people starting to write things like automations or scripts that would do things like, oh, you know, send 100 energy from this planet to that planet um, on an interval of like right. 3,600 uh, seconds or something like that. Like they would just have a timeout loop right. with like copy pasted into the Chrome console. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, when we saw that happening, one of the first things that we did was we wanted to, I think a lot of players just like don't even realize that this kind of thing is possible. Like, you know, it's sort of like the conceptual language isn't even there yet to realize that like, oh yeah, like this is a game that's encouraging me to script and automate. Um, so we also just included like this cutesy little terminal at the side of the game UI as well that was basically just like a worse Chrome dev console. Um, but just like, you know, plugged in some instructions there to be like, yeah, you can type in like df.move into this terminal and then it'll spit things out. It'll like trigger a move. And whenever you make a game move in the UI, it'll also print that to the little game terminal Yeah. Um, to encourage players to do that. Um, Interesting. So people were doing this on the Chrome DevTools, but then you saw that happen. I, I, it's, it's like this pattern of seeing your users misuse the product or like basically leaving enough degrees of freedom so people can do weird things that you didn't expect mm -hmm. and then like taking them and codifying them into into like actual patterns. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that with this particular pattern actually, it was more like, like we would prefer actually that people use Chrome DevTools rather than the Dark Force built-in terminal UI. Yeah. Um, but what we saw was that players were using the Chrome Dev Tools, and we, like the bleeding edge of players were using Chrome Dev Tools, and we were like, oh, how do we make more people realize that this is the thing that you can do? And the answer to that is like, we'll build a really shitty, like you know, like a diegetic, like in UI terminal that you can use, and you know, you start writing some automations, and then you realize like, oh, wait a second, I can just open the inspector, and I'll get like all these other nice things like autocomplete, um, and then you know, like some people start moving into like actual like writing javascript code and actual ides and like pasting back and forth um and then we got a whole nother host of uh, ideas from that as well um so actually i can speak a little bit about like kind of the plugin system and, that, and yeah. how that's evolved too because that was sort of the next iteration that we saw totally yeah so to move forward chronologically a bit we saw that people wanted uh like the the chrome 
um, inspector workflow is really, really clunky. Um, and for example, one thing that it doesn't lend itself very uh, nicely to is writing shareable code. Um, you know, and one of the goals here has always been to build a developer community, um, get people excited not just about like playing the game, but also you know writing code, sharing that with others, getting feedback on their own code and, and scripts and whatever else. Um, so in December, we introduced a very simple plugin system, where essentially you know we would uh, we have an environment where you can write code into and you know load custom code into the game and it has access to programmatically interact with uh, all of the objects in the Dark Forest client. So for example, <clears throat> it can interact with like the core uh, Dark Forest game manager object, uh, which allows plugins to do things like schedule moves in the future. Um, so there's, there's, if I remember, there's two objects, like one DF object and one UI object. Right, right. right. And those are the ones that we um, build out with the intention of uh, them being accessed by developers, but a lot of developers go even deeper and like kind of pull apart or reconfigure the internals of the DF or UI objects if they want more advanced functionality, uh, which is really interesting to see as well. Um, so you know now you've got this plugin system where you can basically uh, copy paste a snippet of code into one client and then you know pull that out and share that with someone else, um, and they can have like a similar. You know functionality, and now I think when a lot of developers are writing plugins, they're writing plugins with the intent of those plugins being able to be consumed by other players, which is in my head kind of like the next step here from just hacking around in your own Chrome Dev console. Um, so you have these nice, like, repeatably usable utilities, such as the Remote Miner, which allows you to connect to a web server that does, uh, you know, hashes the fog of war faster than your own CPU. Um, you've got like the remote snarker, which allows you to offload the burden of snark proof computation onto another uh, web server, um, and things like you know repeat attack, um, all the way up to like you know very complex plugins that are essentially using like heuristics to conduct a war <laughs> against another player in an entirely right. automated fashion. Like it's like war strategies baked into plugins. Right, right. I feel just speaking about the snark prover, like maybe it's worth just briefly talking about how how snarks are used in the game. It's uh, basically that the universe is being mined, or I mean, you you explain it. You'll probably do a better job. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, the core uh, mechanic behind Dark Forest is that um, when you initialize into the Dark Forest universe, which is this like really big, infinite, procedurally generated uh, universe of planets and other celestial objects. Um, you uh, are initializing into a massive cryptographic fog of war. So initially when you load into the game you don't know where other players are, you don't know where other planets are, um, you only know the location of your own home planet. And uh, what happens is over time you're essentially going to be doing uh, proof of work something analogous to proof-of-work mining to compute uh, what are the locations and points of interest in your neighborhood. So, you know, essentially what's going on is that you're, you're like running computation in order to lift the cryptographic fog of war. Now, um, the smart contract is also, and anybody just like looking at the blockchain is also not going to be aware of the exact locations of, um, you know, planets or players or anything like that. 
Um, all the smart contract has is it has commitments to locations uploaded by players. So when you initialize into the game, you uh, submit a commitment to your home planet. Now, the game still has to verify, though, that actions that you're taking are valid. So, for example, planets have a range stat, and you can't move you know, energy from one planet to another beyond the range of the origin planet. Yeah. So how it checks that is that um, even though locations are hidden and the only thing that the chain sees is commitments to locations, players can publish zero-knowledge proofs that moves between the locations underlying two commitments are indeed valid. Um, and that allows us to preserve the cryptographic fog of war mechanic while still ensuring that um, you know, all moves actually are happening accord in accordance with the rules of the game. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, easy to not realize how crazy this idea is, right? <laughs> that there's a shared universe, um, that there is no central party keeping this. It's literally stored on an Ethereum smart contract. And anyone looking at it can't see anywhere else in the universe other than where they are themselves. Yeah. And then the moves, like the, the patterns of expanding from where you are, are governed by these like snark proofs. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, like one another framing of this sort of thing is that it's an uncheatable game where even the core devs can't know where you are. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, a protocol for location and movement. Uh, that everybody gets to buy into. Yeah. So then um, back to back to the remote remote snarker is it called? Mm -hmm. Plugin. So basically, the the way the game worked out of the box was you would open your web browser and like your just Chrome instance would be would be like hashing would be I don't know exactly how the mining like works, yeah, like but it, it would be in a spiral around. Right. It hashes in a spiral, and that takes a lot of time. And um, basically, like people have been spinning up AWS servers and like mm -hmm. running this process remotely there. Yeah. Um, and so maybe this is an interesting foray into. Obviously, this game is on Ethereum, and items that are inside this game will be valuable, right? For uh, one. Yeah, I mean, I guess well, we have seen things like artifact NFTs start to transact for you know, small to medium-ish amounts of value, but that's that's not something which we try to deliberately have a hand in. It's something that I think is organically happening. Right. And so, okay, given that like a remote snarker plugin exists already, w will the same kind of like GPU mining, like ASIC mining wars <laughs> that happen on blockchains happen here in the game basically like reaching to the asymptote of what the things you're mining are worth like people will spend that much money mining the universe right yeah i mean i think it, it's really interesting we are seeing people spend like hundreds of dollars on like aws or digital ocean droplets um to get more compute uh for being able to mine the universe faster um i think that like well one difference here is that once one person has mined an area of the universe if you trust them they can just like sell you that data and you know you can resell it and, and so i think it's like it's somewhat different from just like you know hash power is worth a certain amount of dollars like now there's all these interesting questions about like the topology of the map and the location and like what pieces of information do you want more than others or like more, what sellers are more trusted than others um 
But yeah, I think that like there's this natural feedback loop that we're starting to see happen between um, because this is a crypto game built on an EVM compatible system. Uh, players are empowered to start assigning economic value to um, assets in the game, whether that's information or like literal NFTs. And because of that, players are in turn um, also more willing to spend money on things like mining power um, or even like buying patches and plugins from other players too. Yeah, totally. There is a large space of interesting interactions to explore and like almost any new plugin can change the dynamics and the one that i'm particularly thinking about now is this one where you reveal a portion of the map or you sell a portion oh, of yeah. the map <laughs> what is, what is the idea there um yeah so there, there's a couple of plugins actually in this uh under this sort of thematic umbrella so one is like very early on I know that uh, some folks built a map import export tool um, that allows you to snip just you know a certain rectangle out of your map and send it to someone else. Um, oh, just like a screenshot. Yeah, basically. <clears throat> and uh, another really exciting plugin that we saw from a recent round was the broadcast marketplace, which basically allows players to put bounties on. Um, certain planets' coordinates to be revealed. So you might say like, oh, I know that you know I'm in a war with Cena, and I see that Cena has some, uh, you know, Cena's got like some big level nine planet, and I don't know where it is, but I know that it's sort of, you know, funneling energy <laughs> into the uh, into the front of our like uh, battlefield here. So I'll put a bounty on that planet to be revealed. Um, and yeah, so we're seeing information basically as like a first class resource in this game that's also getting transacted and that's something that's you know made possible by the ZK stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, and this is why I think the ZK stuff is really powerful for games because once you have an incomplete information game, then information itself becomes a first class resource. And combined with the economic mechanics of crypto, you can get all sorts of dimensionality that you wouldn't otherwise. Interesting. It also makes me think of like with the reveal marketplace, there could be an incentive to just go explore the universe, right? Exactly, like, yeah. And so there will be players who are not even maximizing their, um, this is a pretty interesting idea, that they're not even maximizing the score that the game is telling them to maximize. They're just looking at this reveal requests and seeing that, oh, like I could go in this corner of the universe and just map it out and that'll be valuable. Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely different ways to play. And I think that like, you know, some players become specialists in uh, like in Discord. Um, some players are like selling map data and they're basically, you know, getting their like mining rig set up so that way they can sell off chunks of map for like 5x each or something. Um, other players are like, you know, artifact hunters. They're just sort of rather than trying to build a big empire, they're just like jumping around the universe and like finding uh, and harvesting like artifact NFTs. Um, some players are really into the coding aspect of the game, so they're building plugins and sharing those um, and encouraging others and educating others on how to get involved as well. Um, and then, you know, there, of course, there's always going to be like hardcore competitive players as well who are wanting to engage in PvP, um, going for maximal score, uh, writing scripts specifically to help them achieve those goals. Yeah. One thing I, I remember you saying is that you're trying to build a game that's 
that's fun to play right that it's it's good for the sake like it's it's enjoyable to play and especially the kind of economic mechanisms that emerge out of it are secondary for the time being yeah and now we're talking about the different um different different like archetypes of players that are emerging and it, it feels like there's there's just a whole emergent like property to the way this game is growing and i'm curious in terms of like your focus what do you see as the the key pieces to focus on like what are the most high leverage things that you're focusing on so that this thing can continue like organically growing yeah i think um, well, first to respond to one thing that you mentioned about economic mechanics, um, even though we are seeing like these flywheels happening where stuff in the game is starting to become valuable to some players, and that you know incentivizes players to like spend money on like AWS mining or things like that, um, the latter part of that loop is something that we were seeing even before anything in this game was worth anything. You know, players were just uh, of their own volition they wanted <laughs> to have knowledge of more of the universe so they you know spend money mining out like some large quadrant or some like very large region um, and that to us was a great sign because that meant that this game isn't just something that people are playing due to an extrinsic motivation which is like you know you've got some like financial mechanic or something but rather there's something like intrinsic to this universe that's compelling to people um, and so as much as possible we want to lean into things that enhance or add complexity to the intrinsic motivators that make people want to play the game. Um, so, you know, specifically things that we're like not focusing on are going to be things like, uh, you know, like promoting or trying to hype up the value of dark forest NFTs. You know, if players want to build a marketplace or transact NFTs, they're more than welcome to. Um, but we think that at the end of the day, like price of a prize is is something of an extrinsic motivator. So that's less of a focus. On the other hand, um, things like building out tools for third-party developers um, allows us to tap into a deeper intrinsic motivator that gets a lot of players excited about the game. So, you know, a lot of people who play the game enjoy writing plugins um, or trying to modify the client. So making it easier for them to do so um, allows us to build that community out. Um, and you know, there's always stuff around like making the game itself easier and more fun to play and more accessible too. So um, things like adding new mechanics that can have multiplicative combinations with other mechanics in the game is always something that we try to do every version that we come out with. Um, just broadly improving like it is like quality of life improvements on the game in general with performance and graphics and things like that. Um, so all the things that like, you know, and this, this stuff doesn't sound like groundbreaking or anything because it isn't, it's just like what is involved in building a good game. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think that we have to build a good game rather than like a like profitable financial application for this kind of thing to be long-term viable. Yeah. When you say game mechanics that together unlock new areas, um, what is an example of that? Yeah. So like this last version we introduced... Um, so for those who aren't familiar, uh, there are items that you can discover on certain dark forest planets um, that are called artifacts, and these artifacts basically grant power-ups and stat boosts um, to uh, different you know, planets that you own that you might choose to deposit them on. So for example, if I discover like 
a spaceship artifact on one planet, then I can activate that art. I can move that artifact around my empire, and then activate it on another planet, and that planet will get like a range boost. Mm. Um, so, uh, last version we introduced artifacts with status effects that are more than just passive stat boosts. So we introduced um, wormholes that allow you to basically connect two faraway planets and uh, speed up any moves that go between them. Uh, we introduced the photoid cannon, which allows you to fire off like a single very powerful attack from a planet, um, and it's consumable, so this is like a one-time use thing. Uh, we introduced like a planetary shield, which allows you to give like a one-time like very strong defensive bonus to a planet of your choice, um, and you know like various of these sort of like active status effect uh, artifacts. And what we saw is that like players were using these status effect artifacts, these active artifacts in combination with each other in interesting ways um, to basically do things like, you know, pull off a heist where like you would uh, fire off a move with the photoid cannon from planet A to planet B and that move would be carrying a wormhole and then you would use that wormhole oh and connect God. it back to your original planet and then you would send like a black domain along the wormhole and then you would like destroy that planet and then, you know, like transfer its assets to to like yourself or something. So th there's like this, there's this whole um, like combo system that was sort of evolving towards uh, the end of the last couple of rounds where people were figuring out how to use these artifacts in combination with the other natural mechanics of the game um, to uh, basically come up with strategies that like us, the developers, hadn't envisioned because we simply couldn't. Like the total number of combinations for how you can put these things together is too much for us to be able to predict in advance how people are going to use them. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a big part of how this game is evolving is the community around it, right? Both, Definitely. Both on the side of like users doing, you know, these weird combos um, to like developers building plugins. Um, and like to your point of um, finding, you know, intrinsic motivators for people, what do you think is drawing people to this game? Why do why do developers go and spend like a week not doing anything else but <laughs> but but like play a dark forest round? What's happening there? Yeah, so for one thing, I think that we've got a really um, we've got a very active developer community of just like a lot of really like friendly and also strong developers. So you know, I know that like Blaine and Jacob, um, who are two of our most prolific third party developers, have done an amazing job of educating new devs and giving feedback on different people's plugins and stuff like that and there's an effect that i think starts to happen where it's like you know if you're joining this community and you're seeing all these other people like create and share all this cool stuff you feel that you might want to participate as well and you'll get like you know some like street cred for coming out with like a really awesome or creative plugin idea or a really like neat piece of technology or infrastructure that other people can use um, so I, yeah, I just, I, I think like the feeling of community is very important for a lot of people. Um, there's a little bit perhaps like of a competitive ac uh, aspect to like who can create the coolest stuff as well. <laughs> um, I think like, uh, another thing that's really powerful is that Dark Forest lives under this larger umbrella of the Ethereum slash crypto movement. <clears throat> and especially because, you know, it is 
in a lot of ways the first game to use a lot of new technologies that are becoming available to application developers. There's this feeling of you get to be on the forefront um, and you get to also bounce around ideas with other people who are also at the forefront and also part of the same movement as yourself. Like the thing that's really inspiring to me is just jumping in our Discord and chatting with um, a bunch of other players, a lot of them who are also just even familiar names on crypto Twitter or something like that. Um, and it's basically just like another uh, like channel for interacting with this broader crypto community or broader like ZK development community. Yeah. It makes me think of the saying that building hard, building hard things is sometimes easier than building easy things. Yeah. Because you get, yeah, you get, you get everyone excited and, you know, it's just inspiring to be at the frontier and doing things that haven't been done before. Yeah, for sure. I think that like, it's much easier to, uh, get people excited about something that's like, not just another like web to web app or something like that. Like we've all seen a million of those at this point when there's something new going on, like it's going to drive a certain kind of person who is naturally like curious and eager to innovate. Um, and when you get a bunch of those people together, then I think that like really interesting things start to happen. Yeah. And maybe it would be cool to talk about how Blaine and Jacob found this game. Oh yeah. And I feel like there's almost this like, evolutionary history of like how various interesting people have found Dark Forest and then been a part of it going to its next stage. Yeah, so uh, Blaine and Jacob discovered the game very early on, I think either in version 0.3 or version 0.4. The both of them actually won v0.4 and you know the way they did that was they were two of the first players to realize that the game is highly programmable and that you can, you know, write powerful scripts and automations and, you know, client modifications and stuff to achieve your ends. So, uh, yeah, they took first and second in version v0.4, um, and afterwards we were really curious how they had won um, because we had seen that like you know v0.4 was the first version where I think like actual. Uh, programming was like heavily used to give players an advantage. Um, So we got in touch with them and we asked them to sort of break down their strategies and how they'd gone about, um, you know, like growing their empire and like winning the game. Um, And we found that they'd just been doing like all this crazy stuff, like hacking into our code that we like, it was just like mind blowing to us. (laughs) How did they even find out about Dark Forest? I think that someone must have tweeted out about it back in like mid late 2020 i know like vitalik shared the game at some point on twitter um in in early fall i think uh so a number of players found out through that and then we also had this like hacky little system going where like in order to verify your twitter you would have to like send out a tweet with a signature Um, that's a good move yeah definitely that that helped get a lot of people interested in like huh like why are all of these like you know crypto Twitter accounts tweeting out like these like byte strings <laughs> that are tagged with like hashtag dark maximally forest. mysterious tweets right right and now I think that this is a pattern that we're seeing more and more um, I know that like you know to verify with like mirror for example you also have to do this um, I think actually like you know one of the first examples of where I saw this was like Keybase mm-hmm. um, like you know a couple of years ago if you wanted to verify your Keybase account you had to like tweet out and. <laughs> that totally. was pretty cool to see. But 
Anyway, so yeah, they, they found the game, I think, through Twitter. Um, Juan version V0.4, we got in touch with them, tried to figure out like what the heck they were doing to, to play this game so effectively. Um, and then since then, you know, like we started sharing our vision with them of this like very programmable, interoperable, uh, you know, blockchain-based game. And they were super excited about that. So ever since then, we've been going back a lot back and forth, you know, getting feedback from them on uh, third-party tooling to help out with other third-party developers um, and, you know, getting ideas from them as well about, like, how can we make the game more uh, friendly both to players and programmers? Yeah. Yeah, and having... We're, we're recording this after a, a mini-con that we hosted in Seattle, and it was the first time I was meeting Blaine and Jacob and was just... Yeah, blown away by how uh, <laughs> how excited they are about the different directions that this game can go in, and are like just coming up with all these like crazy ideas um, that I wouldn't have thought of, and also how good they are as engineers. Mm -hmm. Like they're like really solid engineers who are just working on this game um, because you know it hooked them. Right, and it really does speak to the power I think of having like an open ecosystem and an open community, um, like you know, a lot of the stuff that they're building out is stuff that, like, our quote-unquote, like, core team definitely doesn't have either, like, the experience or the perspective or the knowledge to have considered, um, you know, and we see that also with players, like, I know DF Dow was doing a ton of interesting stuff last round as well with, like, you know, they assembled a team that operated, like, a multi-sig wallet and, you know, had, like, various different What's specialists. DF Dow? Um, DF Dow was uh, a, like team of players who in the last two rounds um, they scored really really highly and and their strategy was essentially realizing that a single account doesn't necessarily have to map to a single person um, oh my god so you know once once you have this like realization i think it opens up like a really wide range of strategies you can assemble these like teams or DAOs that have uh you know people in different time zones so that way you can always be a active. player that's yeah. awake 24 7 exactly so you know that you're like never gonna have the pro like a lot of players have the problem where like you know you go to sleep and then you wake up eight hours later and like someone 12 time zones away from you has just like taken like the eastern portion of your empire or something like that um so you know and then beyond that you can have uh, certain members of the DAO who are specializing in like negotiation or in writing automations uh you can have players who are you know feeding like sub empires into the main empire by like you know conquering foundries and then transferring them into the main empire's account wow there um, could be yeah there could be full incentive systems like they they don't even need to be cohesive units that are playing these things yeah it definitely. could be just self-interested like parties <clears throat> that are that are right, um, right. running different portions of this empire. Exactly. Or they could even be different players, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, and they're all there's... bound by smart contracts someday. And yeah. So that's that's really cool. And it's another example of a thing that like our like core team definitely would not have thought about on our own because we're not experts in DAOs and we haven't, you know, we come at this more from the angle of like, oh, we want to build a cool video game. Like what kind of cool video games have we played in the past? Um so that's been really cool to see. And yeah, I think like, you know, all of these things are like we get to harness the the whole power of the whole creative energy of an entire community uh, when you do try to make the game open from day one. Yeah. 
And I think maybe maybe this is a good segue to talking about the future of this game. And you're really leaning into this direction of openness, helping you know an ecosystem create be be built around this, and even interoperating with other games. And like, what are some of the things you're focusing on there? Yeah. So I think that um, one thing that's really exciting about crypto native games is that they can permissionlessly interoperate with each other. So, for example, you know we're in contact with a team that is building. Uh, a new game, ZK Dungeon, which is sort of like a you know, dwarf fortress or dungeon keeper-like game, but on the blockchain and using ZK Tech. Um, and the exciting thing about that is that without um, having to, well, without with a big asterisk, because you know there's always you need to build developer tooling and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, technically, without being in communication with us, a team like the ZK Dungeon team could just decide that they're going to hook into the Dark Forest Artifacts contract and like create mechanics like, oh, you know, if you drop your Dark Forest Pyramid into your ZK Dungeon cave, then that like powers up all your units in your dungeon or something like that. Um, and that makes the Dark Forest Pyramid something more than just like, you know, a, an item in a specific game that's only been granted value by virtue of being in that one universe. Like now the Dark Forest Pyramid is something that you can kind of like pick up and walk around with throughout an entire ecosystem of create of of crypto worlds so um yeah interoperability and having multiple games that communicate at the interface level seems like a really really powerful thing um how how do you think that would um, impact like the strategies people use within one game because now there's like external incentives right definitely out of the out of the system there's like other reasons why people would do certain things right right i mean you know and i can only speculate on this because we're still so early but um one thing that i think about here is that you know some people are going to be better at or are going to care more about their identity or reputation in like one universe versus another or their you know ranking on in one world versus another world so perhaps we would see like natural like specialization. You know, some people would be like, oh yeah, I'm the person who like farms like dark forest pyramids or something like that. Cause I'm like really good at dark forest. And then there's someone else who like needs the status effect of a dark forest pyramid in a game like ZK Dungeon. And then there's a natural sort of like positive some relationship that can form between those two games. It's trade through like uh, allowing people to lean into their competitive adv- advantages exactly. and specialize right, and right. like trade between different you know crafts yeah, that they yeah. developed and and specialization um and competitive competitive advantage is exactly what makes like economies interesting um or like market-based economies interesting so hopefully you know you might be able to see some emergent dynamics like that evolve um but yeah like you know we're really excited to to try to see that world through and to that ends this project to us is not just about building dark forest this one single game it's about uh trying to figure out with all of these other stakeholders and voices in the room like you know blaine and jacob building project sofon and dfdao experimenting with what you know the future of like guilds might look like in games um, or all of our other third-party developers or the folks working on zk dungeon how do we create an open ecosystem where these things can all be connected together. So instead of just trying to like, you know, make our game like really good and like shut out the competition or something, I think it becomes more like how do we uh, 
yeah, how, how do we foster a community? Yeah, that's super exciting. It's the definition of like positive sum thinking that we're growing this together rather than we're competing on this like narrow thing that exists today. Definitely. Right. Yeah. I think that like, you know, it's so much more powerful to have, let's say a handful of games that all interoperate with each other rather than a bunch of like siloed individual experiences. I mean, that's what crypto is all about. So, yeah. Have you been inspired in your thinking in this way by any particular other other like ecosystems or things that have been built in the past um what's played a, a role in like shaping your worldview here i think that the biggest inspiration is definitely the ethereum ecosystem itself i think um just looking at how you know even following like you know the way that the ethereum foundation has gone about uh decentralizing ethereum like not just the technology but also the community um, you've got this ecosystem of like research organizations, nonprofits, uh, companies, um, individual developers that all sort of like work together in this harmonious and positive some way. Uh, and it's, yeah, it, it is sort of unconventional because like the first thing that I think a lot of people might think about when you're trying to like build something successful is like, oh, you know, how do I build my like company and make sure that it's got like hard moats that allows it to you know, uniquely succeed and like fend off competitors or something. And I think that there's something of a paradigm shift um, that has to happen uh, when you're working on a technology landscape that whose affordances like naturally lend themselves to explicit positive sum games. So thinking about now, like, you know, how do we actually like foster healthy competition and in turn, like, channel that competitive energy into cooperation in different ways as well. Um, so yeah, the Ethereum ecosystem I think is really unique uh, in in how it's gone about evolving. Um, and hopefully that can provide a lot of lessons for us if, we, if we're really wanting to build this kind of ecosystem of crypto native worlds as well. Yeah, totally. Do you, um, like we were talking about how this could evolve and like there's so much here. But do you see any fundamental bottlenecks or any building blocks that are needed that aren't actually like solved that uh, that are standing in the way? Or is it just a matter of doing the thing? I mean, a, a big question, almost like an elephant in the room for all of this stuff, is the question of scalability. Um, right now, I know that like moves on Dark Forest can take upwards of like a million gas because there's a lot of you know, like ZK proof verification is very expensive on chain still. Uh, but even beyond that, Dark Force is just like a complex game. It's, you know, more than just like a contract that's tracking ownership of tokens. It's like doing a bunch of like fixed point math to calculate how far your ships went, like how much energy has decayed on the voyage from planet A to planet B. So, you know, scalability, I think, is going to be an open question for a while. And I know that, you know, looking at some of the ZK dungeon contract calls, like a lot of those are even more expensive, like multi-millions of gas per transaction. Um, so, uh, you know, for us, what this means is we're just very actively tracking the work on scalability, both at like the protocol level and in terms of L2s as well. Um, it's exciting to see a bunch of optimistic rollups uh, move closer and closer to production and also to see the progress on ETH2, which really feels like it's moving at, at like a pace right now. Um, obviously also I think like 
side chains have played a very important role for us so far. Uh, XDAI has been just, you know, a really phenomenal environment for us to be running Dark Forest on uh, and and working with and talking with the XDAI team. Um, we're excited to see how they can contribute and how sidechains can contribute to like the larger vision of a scalable Ethereum ecosystem. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest question that I have a lot of uncertainty around. But I also know that this is not just a question that affects us. This is sort of like an existential question for the whole ecosystem, right? So, um, yeah, like, you know, in in my head, maybe this is also where some of the conversations around like, like public goods and infrastructure comes in because it's like, if so many things at the application level depend on scalability work, then what is the responsibility of application developers and entrepreneurs in the space um, to help support that kind of stuff as well? And that's why I think you know these organizations like Ethereum Foundation are so powerful and so important uh, mm-hmm. for the ecosystem. Yeah, totally. Well, I think layer twos are, you know, um, very valuable things to work on. I don't think they're gonna lack in incentives themselves. Yeah, for sure. And I think also like another interesting spectrum that we might see is like, you know, there's gonna be all sorts of like trade-offs that are necessary depending on like the security guarantees that your application requires versus uh, like how accessible you need to be if you're, you know, maybe if you're running a game or something, you don't need the same security guarantees that like uh, an optic optimistic role of like optimism or Arbitrum built on the Ethereum main chain will provide. Um, maybe like, you know, there's also questions around like how strongly do you need data availability for your application as well right um, like far into the future so i don't know like there's futures even where you could imagine that like you know you have like application specific chains spun up or something like that or you have totally. like um you have execution environments where you have things like interoperability and uh like you know cryptographic mechanisms that ensure that like validators of the system cannot forge transactions but you lose censorship resistance and data availability and you just commit like hashes back to a main chain um, and you make the data available on like IPFS or some hosted service. Totally. Um, and then like a people, Validium model. Right, right. And then, you know, provide like Merkle proofs if you need to prove that you can like withdraw some NFT from this like game that you played. Um, no idea right now what, <laughs> yeah. what the far future Well, I know that there. like that is, you know, application specific rollups. Um, or, you know, a world of many rollups is explicitly a part of Arbitrum's vision, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not seeing it as there's going to be one canonical rollup. Um, and even Reddit, you know, is building their own application-specific right, right. rollup. Um, yeah, and I mean, in terms of, like, needs driving innovation, you know, games are really at the forefront of things, like, where you're just making a ton of moves, like, there's the game logic is quite complicated, this and you know other like let's say like reddit launching with where they have you know lots of users these are going to put the pressure on um on the infrastructure to like improve to meet their needs yeah i I hope so i think that like if you know we live in a world where there aren't applications that are pushing the bounds on demand then uh you know perhaps there aren't those natural grounded feedback loops that are telling you know, protocol level designers, what they need to be optimizing around. So 
another hope for uh, ZK games like Dark Forest or ZK Dungeon or other things is that they can provide um, some feedback to people who are thinking about like scalability and stuff uh, on what needs to be support or what pe- what there's demand for support for in the yeah. far future. This is this is something I've thought for a while, and like Dark Forest is a very good example of it, where I feel like applications are are like fundamentally a lever for moving the space forward because you know one they they build useful things with the technology right like that's their prime motivation is to right. like do interesting <laughs> things um two like that interesting thing ends up attracting talented people to work on it so it's you know each each kind of interesting application is a node that's growing the amount of talent that's in the space because like they're just attracting people in right and there's a feedback loop that you that gets built up and then yeah the last point is that they kind of um, have needs from the infrastructure and over time like have to sol- like start solving their own problems yeah and to me like a web 2 example of this is you know Google building kubernetes or mm. Google building the go programming language right right yeah. Um, and the exciting thing to me, though, about the way that this could play out in Web3 is that because Web3 is fundamentally a more open paradigm, you could see that these uh, the infrastructure that gets built is shared between different applications and different teams. And you have like open standards evolving um, rather than individual companies uh, with like IP considerations or considerations about like moat or whatever else having to reinvent the wheel every single time they need like, you know, a scalable, like whatever, whatever store. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's going to be really powerful. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, good stuff, man. We've been talking for some time. Yeah. Should no, we call it here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can call it. Okay. Cool. Sweet. Thanks so much, Sina. Mm-hmm.